Well, we've been going through 1 Peter, and we noted last week as we hit verse 13 that Peter's tone changes. And in verse 13, he begins to write in, in what's called the imperative sense, which means it's a response. And so the idea is this. He basically is saying, based on who you are in Christ, based on this great salvation that, that you have that God has given to you, based on this glorious inheritance that is a part of your destiny, this is how you are to respond, that you are called to walk in holiness, and so we began to, to talk about that idea of what does it mean to be holy. And I gave you this definition of holiness last week that, very simple, it's a singular, that you've been called to a singular purpose. And that singular purpose is to glorify God. That's a good definition of, of what it means to be holy. You've been called to a singular purpose, and that singular purpose is to glorify God. And so Peter was talking about, beginning in verse 13, how we are called to now walk in holiness. But he also mentioned that, that holiness, it's not just our calling, but it's our identity. It's who we are in Christ. And we finished up our time last week in looking at some, some reasons why holiness matters. And I gave you two. The first was that Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready. That was the first one. And the second one was this, it's so that that's how the world sees God in us. It's verse 16 where he, God says, be holy for I am holy. It's how the world sees God in us when we are walking in holiness. Well, today I want to continue that thought here as we pick up in verse 17. I want to give you two more reasons why holiness matters. Look at verse 17. Peter writes, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Why does holiness matter? If you're taking notes, number one, because there is a judgment coming. Now, when we talk about the judgment of God, it's important that we understand that the judgment of God is different for believers and unbelievers. For those who are unbelievers, who are not followers of Jesus Christ, they are basically going to be judged on one thing, one question. And the question is this, what have you done with God's son? Did you accept him or did you reject him? You see, when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutral ground. You know, sometimes people want to pretend like they can be neutral about Christ. But remember what Jesus said? You are either for me or against me. So there's, you can't be neutral when it comes to Christ. So where you are going to spend your eternity is based solely upon how you have responded to the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's the good news that when mankind was lost in our sin that separated us from a holy God, God decided to do something about that by sending his only begotten son, Jesus. In fact, Peter tells us that this whole salvation plan was ordained before the foundation of the world. 
But he sent Jesus to come to this earth and become a man for the very purpose so that he could go to a cross where he would die on that cross to pay the price for our sins and then three days later rise again from the dead in order to give us life, in order to give us hope. And so that's the message of the gospel. And a person either believes that good news and embraces Christ or they don't believe it and they reject Christ. And that's the one thing that unbelievers are going to be judged by. But there is also a coming judgment for believers as well. But hear this. It's not a judgment of condemnation, but it's a judgment of commendation. In other words, it's a judgment of rewards. Look at verse 17 again. Speaking of God the Father, it says, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. You see, unbelievers are going to be asked this question, what did you do with my son? For us who are believers, we're going to be asked, what did we do with what God had given to us? What did we do, in other words, with our salvation? Did we grow in it? Did we, were we grateful for it or did we neglect it? Were we unappreciative of it? Did we take it for granted? Our judgment is going to consist of what did we do with the gifts that God has given to us? What did we do with the opportunities that God has given to us? What did we do with the resources that God has given to us? That, that's what our judgment is going to be based upon. Now, Jesus described the faithful believer living in light of his coming in this way, Luke chapter 12, verse 42, he says, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Jesus described the faithful steward as the one who knows that they're on earth for a purpose of representing his master, that that's his purpose, that that's why we're here. And he says, blessed is that servant when his master comes, he finds that that's what he is doing. Jesus described our responsibility for using what God has given to us in this way. Luke 12, verse 48, for for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Jesus says, look, To those who have been given much, much is going to be required. And we've been given so much in Christ. Paul the Apostle asked a similar question of what's required of a steward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, he put it this way. It's required that a steward be found faithful. So that's what the Lord is looking for in us. He's looking for faithfulness. And those who are faithful with with, with what the Lord has entrusted to them, they are going to be rewarded with more. More resources, more opportunity, more responsibility. So our judgment is not about salvation, but it's about rewards. It's about the role that we are all going to play in God's kingdom. Because I remind you of this often, heaven's not the end for us. Heaven's going to be amazing. But after we go to heaven, Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, we come back with him. And he's going to set up his kingdom here and reign for for a thousand years. And all of us who are his followers have a role to play in that millennial kingdom. And that role is going to be based upon what we have done now with what 
God has given to us. So here's a question. How is God going to judge? What's the criteria? Well, again, Peter, look at verse 17. He tells us, And if you call on the Father who without partiality, key phrase there, judges according to each one's work. Without partiality is without masks. You know, we often put on masks. No pun intended there. We love masks. You're saying, no, we don't, Pastor Rob. We hate them. (laughs) But we love to put on masks. We love to pretend to be something that we're not. But you know, God, he sees behind the mask. He sees what's really going on. He sees our hearts. And he knows our motives. He knows our our character. God sees all behind that. And he's going to judge us according to our character and the motives of our heart. And this is exactly what Paul the Apostle was writing about in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 when he said this, for there is one For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down, the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, there's only one foundation that any true ministry is built upon, and it's the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's why our mission statement for our church is simply Jesus, because the idea behind that is everything that we're doing, it's all for Jesus and his glory, It's all about Jesus. That's why we meet and we take studying the Bible so seriously because that's how we grow in him. And it's all through Jesus, his power to enable us to do what God has called us to do. So Jesus is the foundation of all true ministry. All true ministry is built upon that foundation. But what Paul says next really speaks to our character and the motives of our heart when he says this in verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and costly stones, or wood, hay, or stubble, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Here's what he's saying. The things that are done with the right motives and the right heart and the right character is like the gold, silver, and precious stones. It endures in the fire. But the things that are done with the wrong motives and the wrong heart, it's like the wood, hay, and the straw. And what happens when you put that stuff in the fire? It gets burned. In other words, there will be no reward. So this is the point. God is looking at the character and the motives of our heart as it relates to how we live for him and and the work and service that we do for him. So in light of this coming judgment, where we're going to be judged according to our work, this judgment of rewards, this judgment of, of commendation, Peter says that we should conduct ourselves there in verse 17 throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, is Peter suggesting that we should be afraid of God? And the answer is no. Like when you see the word fear in relationship to God, oftentimes in the Bible, like in Proverbs 1, verse 7, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that word fear speaks of a reverence, of sort of being in awe of God. But it's interesting, the word that Peter uses here for fear is the word in the Greek phobos, from which we get our English word phobia. 
And you know that word. A phobia is something that you are afraid of, right? People are afraid of bugs or lizards or height. They have a phobia of those things. So what is the fear, the phobia that Peter wants us to walk in? In light of, I think it's this, in light of this coming judgment where we're going to answer for our stewardship. This is the fear. He says, conduct yourself in this fear, this phobia that you're going to stand before God and have nothing to show for your life. That you're going to stand before God and have nothing to show for what he has given to you. It's a fear of squandering what God has given to us. You know, I have a fear, a phobia of not being prepared to preach. It's a fear of standing up in front of all of you and not being prepared and faking it. I never, ever, ever want to do that. I have a fear, one sort of a fear of God, you know, of doing that, but a sense of like, I never want to be in that place. So, so I study really, really hard. I'll spend 15, 20 hours, you know, working on a message each week because I just don't want to do that. It was ingrained in me from a very, very young age. When I was in high school and serving in the high school ministry at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, actually when I was in college, and we went on these week-long retreats. And every day, all the leaders, we would meet in this one room where we'd have our coffee or our tea, and we would do our devotions, and each one of us kind of separately. And it became sort of the tradition that every day before the opening session that our high school pastor, Richard, would call on one of us to say, okay, Rob, it's your turn. Share your devotions today. And so it built this thing inside of me. I never, ever want to be unprepared when I get called upon. You know, That's something that I've just wrestled with. Yes, we're having lighting problems today. Um, <laughs> my worst ministry experience ever, though, happened when I had to give a pitch to Pastor Chuck Smith and the board at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. It was back when we owned the property on Melrose Drive, and we were going to build a new church and a new school, and we had went through all the permits and had all our approval from the city, and we just needed a little bit more money to get us over the hump so that we could break ground, and, and we didn't have it. And it was during a time, you know, the recession was going on. It was a really, really difficult time. And so somebody suggested, why don't you go meet with Pastor Chuck and, and see if they would help us out? So I put to, we put together this little proposal. We sent these folders up to them a week ahead of time, and I was told I was going to have 15 minutes to kind of share with them what our, our need was. And so I drove up there, and I was nervous because I you know, you guys have this idea of Chuck, you see him on the stage and teaching and he's got that big smile and he's like, you think that like he's so warm and fuzzy and, and charismatic and he can be that, but in person, he could also be really intimidating. And as a businessman, he was really, really intimidating. He's kind of a shrewd businessman. So I'm going up to ask them for money, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I'm, I'm driving up there and I made sure I was early. I was like an hour early. I did not want to be late. I found out that I was third on the docket. So I ended up waiting two hours out in this lobby before I could go in. And I finally get a walk into this room. And here's Pastor Chuck and like 10 other guys all sitting around this conference table. And Pastor Chuck says, hi, Rob, good to see you. You've got five minutes. When I heard five minutes, I panicked. 
because I wasn't prepared for five minutes. I was prepared for 15 minutes. In fact, I had prepared myself for 12, and I was going to leave three minutes for questions and answers. And literally, I just panicked, and I started just talking super fast. Worst presentation I've ever given in my entire life, and uh, it did not go well. We did not get the loan, and uh, we're still here. And... But, but it was like, I just left there going, I never, ever want to experience that again. It was the most horrible ministry experience I've ever had. I drowned my sorrows on the way home in a big tub of ice cream as I was driving down the 405. But, um, but think about this. That's meeting with Pastor Chuck and his board, who are a bunch of men. Yeah, it's intimidating, but it's a bunch of men. Imagine standing before God and to give an answer for what he has given to us. And that's what Peter has in mind when he says, hey, knowing that day is coming, we need to conduct ourselves with a fear, a phobia of being unprepared. So how do we do that? We use the resources, the opportunities the influence that God has given us to the fullest, serving God with the right heart and the right motives and doing it for his glory. So holiness matters. Number one, because there is a judgment coming. Number two, because of Jesus' sacrifice. Look at verse 18 again. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spots. Holiness is our rightful response to the price that has been paid for our redemption. You see, Jesus gave his all in order to save us. And our response should be that we're going to give our all to him in surrender and in adoration and in worship and in service because of what he has given to us. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to talk about why the blood of Jesus Christ is precious to us. We're going to end our time today with communion, but but it's precious. The blood of Jesus Christ is precious to us because of its usefulness. What would be more useful to a man who's starving out in the desert? What would be more useful? A suitcase full of $10 million or a loaf of bread and some water? You know, a suitcase of $10 million is no good to a man who's going to starve to death. Food and water would be more precious to someone who is starving to death. Why is the blood of Jesus Christ so useful or so precious to us? Because of its usefulness. And we could literally spend hours today talking about that. In fact, this week in the devotions that we're sending out, it's all going to be about the usefulness of the blood of Jesus Christ. I hope you enjoy that. But, but I want to give you just three reasons For the sake of time today, why is the blood of Jesus so precious to us? Number one, it's precious because of its redeeming power. Peter says that we are not redeemed by corruptible things like silver or gold or gems. And I love this because those are the most valuable commodities in our culture. But what Peter's saying is, hey, no amount of money whatsoever could be enough to redeem us to buy us out of our slavery to sin. There's only one thing 
the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We're not redeemed by by earthly commodities. We are redeemed by the perfect, sinless blood of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was on trial during his crucifixion? And Pilate examined him. And Pilate said afterwards, he came out to the people and he says, I I don't know what the big deal is. I find no fault in this man. He couldn't find anything of which to accuse Jesus of. And it's interesting because in the, the Hebrew culture, they would take a lamb. And when a lamb was brought to, the, to be sacrificed, the priest would have to inspect that lamb. And they would inspect it looking to see if there was a spot or a blemish. And if they found one, that lamb was deemed not worthy for the sacrifice. It had to be a lamb that was without spot and without blemish. And so the priest would very thoroughly inspect it. Well, all during that week leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus was being inspected by the religious leaders. They were inspecting him. They, they were looking for something of which they could accuse him of. So they inspected, they, they challenged his authority. He passed with flying colors. They challenged him on his loyalty. They said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Remember his answer to that? It was so brilliant. Jesus said, let me see a coin. Somebody gave him a coin. He says, whose inscription, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. He said, okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. The implication there was such a brilliant response is God's image is on you because the Bible says that all of us have been made in the image of God. And so Jesus was saying, hey, the coin, it has Caesar's image on it. Give that to Caesar, but you belong to God because his image is on you. So you give yourself to God. It's a brilliant answer. And all week long, the religious leaders, one thing after another, they were trying to find something to accuse him of, and he passed every single test. Why? Because he is the Lamb of God who is without spot or blemish. They got so frustrated, these religious leaders, they finally hired some people to just make some things up, to accuse him of insurrection against Rome and blasphemy against God. My point, though, is this. Jesus is the only only human being who could die on the cross and pay the price for our sins. Who could pay the price for our redemption because he's the only human being who has ever been perfect through and through. So his blood is precious to us because of its redeeming power. Number two, it's precious because of its cleansing power. You see, the blood of Jesus doesn't just redeem us, it cleanses us. The Apostle John wrote these words in 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Let me, let me hear you say, all sin. You see, sin has a direct defiling effect upon every single person. It's the world's worst and deadliest disease. It is always fatal. The Bible says the soul that sins will surely die, but then the Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So every single one of us, we're born with this sin nature. We're born, if you would, with a death sentence. 
But the Bible also tells us that there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from our Savior's veins, and no matter how great the offense, no, no matter how many the offenses, no, no how deeply seated our offenses may be, the blood of Jesus Christ cries out, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though your sins be as red as crimson, they shall be as white as The blood of Jesus Christ has the power to cleanse us from all sin. But it doesn't just cleanse us from our sin. It also cleanses our conscience. It frees us. It cleanses us, in other words, from our guilt. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it tells us, The blood of Christ has cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Isn't that awesome? Charles Finney was the great revivalist preacher, preached a lot on revival in the 1900s. And he was preaching in Detroit, Michigan one night. And in the crowd was one of the most notorious thugs in the entire city. And this man listened to Moody. And he, as Moody preached on the blood of Christ, he preached on, on our salvation. He was moved. So afterwards, he asked if he could have a private meeting with Dr. Moody or Dr. Finney, excuse me, Dr. Finney. And all the people who knew this guy, they told Finney, you don't want to meet with this guy. I mean, he's, he's bad news. He's a bad dude. And Finney said, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid. I'll meet with him. So Finney goes to meet with this guy, and they go into this room. The guy closes the door, this thug, and he locks it, and he pulls out a gun. And he says to Mr. Finney, he says, don't, don't be afraid. I'm not, I'm not going to shoot you. He says, but I've killed four men with this gun. Is there any hope for a man who would do something like that? And Finney responded, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, is able to cleanse us from all sin. The man continued, I've been a gambler my whole life. I've I've spent my life taking money from people illegally. Is there any hope for a man who would live his life in that type of way. And Finney again said, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, is able to cleanse us from all sin. The man said, I've sent men down a road to hell. I've encouraged them on how to take from their family and not take care of their wife and their children. Is there any hope for a man who would lead men down a road like that? And again, Finney said, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. The man said, down the street here is an apartment where I live. And there's a wife there that I've abused. And a little girl who's disfigured because one night I came home after gambling all night in a drunken stupor. This, my little girl came running up to me to greet me and I pushed her aside and she fell against the heater and was badly burned and disfigured. Is there any hope for a man who would treat his family like that? And once again, Finney said, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that is able to cleanse a man from all sin. They talked a little while longer, and then Finney left. And that man stayed up all night long. He didn't sleep. He was just praying and talking to God. His heart had been deeply impacted by the gospel. Early in the morning... Before the sun was up, he stumbled home. He went up and got in bed. He was in sound asleep for a few hours when 
His wife told his little girl to go up and wake up daddy and tell him that breakfast was ready. So his little girl went running upstairs and said, Dad, Dad, Mom says it's time to get up. Your breakfast is ready. And, and the man said, Maggie, darling, I, I'm not hungry. I don't want any breakfast. The little girl ran, home, ran back downstairs and said, Mom, da- Dad said he didn't want any breakfast, and he called me darling. The mom said, you must have heard him wrong. Go back up and tell him that breakfast is ready. The man came downstairs, took his wife in his arms, his little girl on his knee. And he said, honey, I have sinned against you like no man has sinned against his wife and against his family. But last night I heard the preacher preach about the blood of Jesus Christ that is able to cleanse a man from all of his sin. And I gave my heart to Jesus. And he has cleansed me And he says, wife, you have a new husband. And Maggie, you have a new father. That's the power of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. It transforms a man. I think about Mike Viveros, our our Spanish pastor. You know, he spent several years in prison. He was a full-time, full-on gangbanger. Now he preaches the gospel. A few weeks ago, I did an amazing interview. It'll be on my podcast soon with a guy named David Zamora. David is the pastor of Living Way Church in Fontana, another guy, gangbanger dude, and he was facing a life sentence that God just somehow radically reduced. He gets saved. Now he pastors this amazing church, making an incredible impact. But get this, he doesn't even have his high school diploma And he's the vice president of a Christian college. Think about that. And on the board of this Christian college are administrators from Azusa and Biola. And so they were all having a meeting together. And they said to to David, they said, one of them said, David, because this is kind of part of his responsibility is handling the the funds and stuff of the college. He says, David, you're really good with money. Um, How'd you you become, you know, so good with money? He says, spent years selling dope. Learn to be a really good businessman selling drugs, you know. But Jesus has transformed him. And now he's making this incredible impact. That's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that it can completely transform a person. It cleanses us from all sin. It cleanses our conscience from all guilt. And I ask you, do you need some cleansing today? Do you need some cleansing today of your sin? Of your guilt. It's available through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the blood of Jesus Christ is precious to us because of its redeeming power. It's precious to us because of its cleansing power. And number three, the blood is precious because it provides a way of access into the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. We come boldly into the throne room of God because of the blood of Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting about this. And I want you to hear me. Everybody listen closely. This would mean so much more to the Jewish reader, reading Peter or reading what the writer of Hebrews wrote in that day than what it means to us. And here's why. 
the whole Jewish system of worship was one that communicated a distance from God. You see, in the temple, the temple was comprised of two rooms. There was an outer room that was called the holy place. And in the holy place, the priest, and only the priest, could go into, they would go in there once a day to offer up prayers. The people of Israel, they couldn't even go into the temple. The only place they could go to was the the courtyard. And if you were not a Jew, you were in the outer courtyard. Okay, So everything just spoke of, of distance. Beyond that one room that was called the holy place where the priest, any priest could go in there once a day to offer prayers, was another room that was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the Ten Commandments in the Ark were, and the covered by the mercy seat, and the, the cherubim that were on, on top of that. And there was only one priest who could go into that room, and he could only go into that room one day out of the entire year, the Day of Atonement. And he had to bring the blood of a sacrificial lamb to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. He had, before he could even go in, he had to offer sacrifice for his own sin and the sin of the people. And they would put a rope, almost like a surfboard leash, around his ankle and bells around his legs in case, you know, he went into the Holy of Holies with unconfessed sin that he then would be struck dead and they would have to pull him out. But the whole thing, it spoke of distance. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Between those two rooms hung a veil, a giant veil. And when I say veil, I don't want you to think of, of like a curtain. So often the pictures we see of this are just so wrong. They're, they're just not even accurate. Think more of like a thick rug. Because this veil was 60 feet wide, 30 feet high, and four inches thick. It was like a wall. And basically, basically what it was communicating was, do not enter. You can't come in here. No access. And so only one day out of the entire year, only one person, the high priest, and only after offering sacrifices was he allowed to go into that room. But here's what's amazing. On the day that Jesus died, as he's hanging there on the cross, and Jesus declares, it is finished. In other words, he's saying, the work of redemption and salvation is done. It's been completed. Something amazing happened. That veil... 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, four inches thick, hanging there in the temple, was ripped from the top to the bottom. It's like God reached down out of heaven and took that thing and ripped it in two to basically say, there's access now. Where there used to be distance, there could be intimacy. Where there used to be a wall, now there was a door. Where there used to be a sign that said, do not enter, now there was a sign saying, open house. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that we now have access, that we can come boldly into the throne room of God. In fact, let me read to you what he says in, in, in verse 20 of chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews. He says, by his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain, into the most holy place. 
And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with the pure water. Isn't that glorious? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 put it this way. So let us now come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. As we close, I want to ask you this question. Have you embraced the work of Christ on your behalf? Have you embraced Jesus and his work on the cross on your behalf? If so, God invites you to come boldly into his presence, knowing that you are welcome, that you can receive grace and mercy from God your Father to help you in your time of need. And I ask you, do do you have a need today? Do you have some needs? God, listen, he's for you. He says, come, you don't need an appointment. You have an all-access pass, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we wrap up our time today and as we move now to to some worship and and to have communion, I want to encourage you in this. Some of you are carrying some burdens. Some of you are carrying some shame that Jesus has forgiven you of. Some of you have some needs that you're wrestling with and holding on to, and God is saying to you today, come boldly. I've got grace, undeserved favor, and I've got mercy available. I want to be a part of what's going on in your life. Just come, bring that burden, bring your heart, bring that to me. And he wants to meet us here right now in this moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for the precious power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's power to redeem us, it's power to cleanse us, and it's power to open this way of access that we can come into your presence. And Lord, we admit today that we are a needy people. And you're inviting us today to come boldly into your presence, to receive from you in this moment grace and mercy in our time of need. Lord, we want to take you up on that offer.